Amen. And so, um, what Omega Monthly? Okay, so we'll, we'll spotlight different missionaries. And the reason I want to do that is you don't, you don't get to see all the information that I get. And uh, it's exciting when you get to read their newsletters and see videos and so forth that they send. So we're, we're going to be better about um, getting that information to you. Hallelujah. Well, this morning, <clears throat> it's going to be a little bit different message than what I normally teach, I think. But um, the title of my message is, Why Did Jesus Promise a White Stone? You know, in, Re in Revelation, the second chapter, Jesus talks about a white stone. Let me, let me read it to you. It's in Revelations, uh, the second chapter, and in the, in the 17th verse. It says, he who has an ear. Now when he's talking about he who has an ear, he's talking about somebody who uses it properly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so he says he's going to give us a white stone. You know, um, I heard somebody sharing one time how um, for years he carried around a white stone in his pocket. In fact, <clears throat> I thought about giving out white stones this morning, um, but I drove all over town and nobody had any. <laughs> and uh, um, I thought about driving to Des Moines or something, but for a $5 bag of white stones, I didn't think it was worth it. And so you have to buy your own white stone. But he carried around a white stone in his pocket and he said the reason that he did that was Every time he went through a difficult time or a struggle or whatever, he'd reach into his pocket and he'd feel that stone and it would remind him of this, this passage that he was going to give him who had a white stone that when he gave it to him, that he would, would be an overcomer. And so he was going to give, he, he, he would carry that with him. I also heard, you know, during the charismatic renewal in the early days, um, Way to go, Junior. Where is he? he? He got a white stone up there. I don't know where in the world he ever found that. <laughs> so, uh, but during the early charismatic renewal, you know, <clears throat> uh, a lot of times we didn't know a whole lot, and so people would just act upon something that they saw. And for example, one of the things that, you know, I, I heard of individuals that were doing is they were driving all over the country, and they were looking for their white stone. Uh, their white stone that had a had their name written upon it. You know the thing about it is there there really isn't anything magic about that white stone. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to look back into you know this New Testament time, and I want us to see something 
concerning the Greek talking about this passage and concerning the history of this day because, you know, <clears throat> oftentimes when we see things in the Bible, um, we, we see it there, but, but what, is, what does it really mean? It really doesn't have any real significance in our life. You know, last week we talked about um, building our house. Do we build our house out of gold, silver, precious stones, or hay sticks and stubble? And we talked about the difference, how Paul was making a comparison there. And here we find Paul, he, or excuse me, John. He's on the island of Patmos, and Jesus appears to him and speaks to him. And he begins to talk to him about this, this white stone. And he says he's going to give that white stone to those that overcome, to those who have overcome. And so there, there's some significance in it because here we see that if we're overcomers, he says he's going to give us that white stone. And so, so what's, what's all involved in this, this white stone? Well, the thing that I want us to see this morning is oftentimes in, in Scripture, especially when you're studying through the Greek, <clears throat> uh, when, you, when you take the Greek literally and, and you read through it, oftentimes it really doesn't make any sense because the structure of their sentences were different than ours. And so you, you read through it and you get done, not that I read the Greek, you know, but you know, when I have like a translation that takes every word literally and you read through it literally, um, oftentimes it doesn't make any sense or it doesn't fit into what the uh, interpreters think it ought to say. And so oftentimes they'll They'll change a word just a little bit, you know, to add clarification. But the problem is, is oftentimes when they change it a little bit to add clarification, it can, it can change the meaning or it gives us a, a different direction of what they're, they're really talking about. Now, this will mean absolutely nothing to you, but uh, what's interpreted as white stone in the Greek is pethion, Lucan. And Pathion simply means um, stone or pebble. And Lucan is white. Now what's interesting about this is when they brought about the translation, they changed the order. They put white stone, they put white in front of stone. And so all that it simply means to us is uh, we're going to receive a white stone. Well, I don't know about you, that doesn't mean just a whole lot to me. I'm going to get a white stone, oh whoopee doo. I have something to carry in my pocket. But then when you look at it, and you look at it literally, what it says literally is you will receive a stone, a white one. And so the emphasis goes from being on the word stone to the emphasis changes to be on white. You're going to receive a stone, a white one. And so it changes the meaning of it. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at it and see historically what would be the significance of Jesus 
giving you and I a stone, a white one, because there is significance to it. And, uh, you know, as we, we, we look at it literally uh, in the scripture, we begin to get some meaning and we look back historically how things used to be done. It begins to give us a picture of why Jesus said what he said. Now, <clears throat> back in New Testament times, uh, when the Romans had concluded a, a trial, um, there would be judges. There wasn't a judge. There would be judges. And the responsibility of these judges were to, to hear the information. And after hearing the information, they were to make a decision. And the decision that they were going to make is whether or not the individual was innocent or whether the individual was guilty. And so each one of those judges, after the trial was concluded and it was time for them um, to come up with a verdict, each one of those judges had two stones. They had a white stone and they had a black stone. And so what they did was they had an urn. And each one of the judges, in turn, would, would place a stone in the urn. If they put in a black stone, it meant you're guilty. If they put in a white stone, they're voting that you're innocent. And so after everybody had voted, after everybody had given their judgment, they'd taken, they had empty out the urn and they would count the stones. If there were more black stones than white stones, you were guilty. Whatever the penalty for your crime was, you would have to pay for it. If it was something, a, a crime that the sentence was death, you would be sentenced according to Roman law and your life would be taken away from you. Now we're pretty humane here. But you know under Roman law, they weren't so humane. We see that with Jesus. How Jesus, before he was crucified, he was, he was whipped beyond recognition. And when the scripture talks about Jesus being beaten, when, that Jesus was whipped beyond recognition, it doesn't mean that you couldn't tell that it was Mary's son. It was that you could barely tell that it was a human being because of the flesh that was ripped from his bones. And so if, if you were guilty, if the number was more black stones than white, you would, have to, you would have to pay the price. You would receive the penalty for your crime. But on the other hand, if there were more white stones than black stones, and under their law it, was, it didn't have to be unanimous either way. It was majority ruled. And so if it was a white stone, then you were considered to be innocent. Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will give him a stone. In other words, Jesus is going to vote. But he's already told us how he's going to. It's going to be a white stone. Aren't you glad? And so what that tells us is in Jesus' eyes, we're, in, we're innocent. It's as if 
we've never sinned because he takes that white stone and he voted innocent. Isn't it wonderful to know that in the courtroom of heaven, Jesus has already cast his vote for you and I. And that vote is a white stone. He's declared you and me innocent, that we're not going to be held accountable for the wrong that we've done. You know, we talk about how Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. But just think about this. He voted, in spite of knowing me, knowing everything that I've done, knowing all the ways that I've failed him, not just in years past, but yesterday. He's aware of all my faults. He's aware of all my shortcomings. But yet, he still sees me as an overcomer and his vote for me, his judgment for me was a white stone. You know, that's really something to re rejoice about. That's his message to us today. That I've given my judgment and my judgment for each and every one of you is that you're innocent. You're not guilty of the crime that you've been accused of. Well, what, what, what's the significance of this? Well, you know, the world, the flesh, the devil, all of those elements around us, what are they constantly trying to do? They're trying to constantly convince us of our guilt. That we're guilty, that we ought to be walking in shame, that we ought to be looking down upon ourselves because we're just barely going to squeak into heaven if we squeak in at all. But he says, we're innocent. He's judged us and he's, he's declared that we are innocent of those crimes of what we've been accused of. Not guilty. And so the significance of that for you and me is that when we feel that judgment come against us, when we feel and hear that accusation coming against us. You know, <clears throat> it also says that the, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. That's the enemy. You know, and oftentimes you'll hear people talk about Job and how Satan went before God and brought accusation against Job. And, and oftentimes people will bring that into uh, the dispensation that we're in right now. That, that enemy is before Almighty God bringing accusation against you and I continually before God. But you know, the Bible says that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. That means that Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever term you want to give him, 
jerk. He no longer has a right. He no longer has an audience to bring accusation against you before Almighty God. Because he's been cast down. But the interesting thing is he is cast down, but God empowered us with the Holy Spirit, with his word, to be able to combat every accusation that comes our way. Because you know what? The accuser of the brethren wants to bring accusation against you and me, but it isn't before Almighty God. The accuser isn't that individual that you have a problem with. The biggest accuser that you have in your life is you. Because you listen to the voice of that accusation. And what does it want to do? It wants to tear you down. It wants to bring you down. But you know who's seated at the right hand of Father God on high? It's not the devil. It's not CNN. It's none of that stuff around us. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's seated at the right hand of Father God on high. And what that tells us is that we have somebody in our camp known as Jesus, who has already put in his stone. And his stone was a white one. And so when anything is brought up on judgment concerning you and me, Jesus says, the vote has already been taken. He's already been declared innocent. And so you know what the key is? The key is for you and I to recognize what Jesus has truly done for us. And what did he do? He cast in his stone. He cast in his vote. And it was a white one. Which means we're innocent. We're not guilty. We're innocent. Because Jesus declared it. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the 13th verse, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean, sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? You know, if, if these things could do it under the old covenant, which never really ever washed anything away, it just covered it over. And that's why under the old covenant, year after year after year, they suffered with guilt, with shame. Because their shortcomings, their failings, their sin was never washed away. It was just simply covered over. And God chose to look at it through the blood of the bulls and goats. But it was never taken away and that's why year after year they suffered the guilt, they suffered the shame because it wasn't ever able to take it away. And it says, now, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, speaking of Jesus, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it talks about the six elementary principles of Christ. And 
And the first elementary principle of Christ is repentance from dead works. Isn't it interesting? It isn't just repentance. You know, I, when I teach it, oftentimes I, I focus on the repentance part of it. And repentance means that you, you turn from what you've been, the direction you've been going, what you've been trusting in, and you go in a whole new direction. You, you make an about face. In the Greek, it's talking about a change of mind. In the, in the Hebrew, repentance is talking about a physical change. And so when you combine the two, what repentance means is making a conscious decision to change direction. And so in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, where it talks about the elementary principles, the first principle that it talks about is the pr principle of repentance. But again, it's very specific. It's talking about repentance from dead works. And here in Hebrews that we just read in the ninth chapter, it says, God cleanses your conscience from dead works. Repentance from dead works. What is that? Trusting in yourself. Believing that you've done enough to earn your salvation or believing that faith in Christ alone isn't enough. That there's still something that you do on your part to earn it when Jesus has done it all. You know what? <clears throat> We're to be responders. We're to respond to God's love. And so when we have a revelation of how much Jesus loved us, this we know because the Bible tells us so. But when we have a true revelation of that, all at once what we do is we're, we're no longer trying to serve God because we're trying to work out our salvation. We're serving God because we love Him. Because we want to. Because we choose to. And the problem with dead works is how do you know when you've done enough? Because anybody that I've ever seen that's been dominated by the law, they never know when they've done a lot, enough. And so what happens in, then is their life is dominated, controlled by a guilty conscience. Because every time they don't do, they don't do something perfectly, they have a guilty conscience. Well, <clears throat> we ought to do things perfectly. Amen. But I won't ask if you're one of those, because if I did, and you raise your hand, I'd have to lengthen out this service because we'd have to have a prayer line for liars. Because none of us are perfect. And so if it required perfection to have a clear conscience, none of us would qualify. Because we would all have a guilty conscience. But because of the blood of Jesus... Because it's no longer based upon my actions, my works. It's based upon what Jesus did for me. And so it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? We're serving a living God. We're not serving a dead God. We're serving a, little God, a living God. And his name is Jesus. But you know what? In this time period, 
There was one other area where the white stone was used. You know, one of the privileges, if you will, of the ancient Greeks were that when there was a, um, what do I want to call it? When there was a social or a, a civil issue, the citizens got to vote on it. And so all over the city, they would have these vases, these large containers. And individuals would be able to vote on civic issues. And the way that they would vote on them, once again, there'd be a black stone and there would be a white stone. If you were voting against the issue, whatever it might be, you would throw in the black stone. But if you were voting for it, you'd throw in a white stone. And then just like with the judges, after everybody, after a length of time, and everybody had the opportunity to vote, they would take that vase and they would pour it out and they'd divide the white stones from the black stones and then they'd count them. And once again, it was the majority vote that won. If there were more black stones and white stones, it didn't pass. If there were more white stones than black stones, it did pass. Well, what's the significance of that? The significance is this. Jesus put in the white stone. He voted yes. Jesus is for you. And the Bible says, if Jesus is for me, who can be against me? I want you to know something this morning. If you, if you leave here and you don't have anything else, I want you to know that Jesus is for you. And there's all sorts of things around you. He put in his vote for judgment and declared you innocent. He put his vote in for you as an individual. And he voted, I'm for this. I'm for you. I'm not against you. And I think oftentimes we look at this and we think of it as a, as a given. Well, everybody knows that. Well, if we really know that, <clears throat> why do we struggle in this area? What I want for you to be able to get a hold of this morning is a, a confirmation that once again, Jesus sees you as not guilty. He sees you as innocent. Now the issue is, and this is why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus put in a stone, he put in a white one. It's just another way that we can look at it and see how God is for us. How Jesus is for us. And how we can look back to this and say, when the accusation comes our way, well, you're too late. Because Jesus has already declared me innocent. Jesus has already declared me not guilty. Jesus has already voted in favor of me. He's on my side. And he did it through his blood. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Really, I think of it this way. If God's for me, it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. Because, you know, it, uh, it seems like there's always somebody that's against something. We seem to be in our culture and our society today, we seem to be um, experts at being against something. The problem is, what are we for? Well, I'll tell you, when we begin to understand how much Jesus is for us, it'll make a tremendous impact upon our life. In, uh, in John the 8th chapter, I didn't think it was there. Praise the Lord. Hmm, I wrote down the wrong scripture. Oh yeah, that's it. I wrote the wrong scripture in my notes. We have this account. And I, it's a little bit different stone. But it's about the woman that was called in adultery. She was caught in the very act. L listen to this. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. How many of you know that that's correct? That's a true statement. What they were presenting to Jesus. Is a true statement in, in this day. If a woman was caught in adultery, she was to be taken to the edge of the city and she was to be stoned. And, uh, and so they present to this, him with this. But what do you say? I don't know if you've realized this, but when you begin to hold, get a hold of the message of grace, when you begin to experience and see the love of God in your life, all at once, everyone begins to try to trick you. They try to take Scripture and use it against you to say that your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't enough. And so it says, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? And this they said, testing him, 
that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. You know, is it interesting Jesus didn't allow those things to bother him? You know why those things didn't bother Jesus? Because he knew who he was. When you know who you are and you know what Jesus has done for you, and people begin to bring these accusations against you and concerning different elements and so forth, you're able to be at peace. You're able to have confidence because you know Jesus. That's where we need to be. Because what happens is when you truly know Jesus as he is, and you begin to have the confidence that you ought to have in him, when those individuals begin to bring those railing accusations against you, there's something down deep on the inside of you that it isn't anger, it's pity. Because they, you begin to realize they don't know the Jesus you know in the way that you know him. Because when you do, there's such confidence, there's such assurance that you can have. And so, when they continued asking him, and I bet they wished they hadn't continued to ask him. <laughs> you know, so typical of the devil. He always overplays his hand. He always takes it too far. But you know, for that to happen, you got to know who you are. You got to know whose you are. You got to know what he has done in you and through you. And so they continued asking him. He raised himself up. Look out when he raises himself up. And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. You know, if they were to throw a stone at her, it would have been a black one. It would have been a stone that indicated you're a loser, you're guilty, should be full of shame because of your behavior. You're not worthy of anyone's love or acceptance. And you know, when you just strictly approach the word, or, or excuse me, the law, without having an understanding of the dispensation that we're in, I think oftentimes that's what it speaks to our lives. Now, people say, Pastor Dave, you don't like the law. I love the law. I love the law. I love the law when it's used in its proper context. Because I could speak as they spoke, as, as Paul spoke. If it had not been for the law, I would have never known that I needed a Savior. You know, because the church that I grew up in said because I had some water sprinkled on my head and because I attended on a regular basis and threw my buck in every once in a while, that everything was wonderful with my life. 
because my name was on the church roll. But you know what? Everything wasn't wonderful in my life. And the only reason that I knew that things were not wonderful in my life was because the law revealed it to me. It revealed to me how far short of the glory of God I had fallen. I love the law. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known that I needed a Savior. We love the law. Amen. Because without the law, we would not have known that we needed a Savior. But when we were introduced to Jesus, when we found our Savior, the law, which was the tutor, the paraclete, to lead us to Christ, was no longer necessary. Why? Because the law was written in my heart. The law of love. The law of serving one another. And so all that law will produce in my life now, it'll try to produce a separation. It'll try to convince me that I'm not good enough and that I never will be good enough. But I am good enough. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And if we truly have an understanding of what Jesus has done for us, that love for him is all the motivation that we need to follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will never lead us to sin. He'll lead us into a deeper understanding of working out our righteousness. Now we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's settled. But it's the works of righteousness that my behavior becomes more and more in line with my Savior. My behavior begins to pattern after him. And so Jesus raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus knew there was power in his words. The reason that Jesus knew that there were power, there was power in his words was because he knew who he was. He didn't have to try to impress the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He knew who he was. He was the Son of God. You and I we don't have to take any particular position to impress somebody. The positions that we take, we take because of who we are. We are the sons of God. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. I'm able to declare it because Jesus put in a stone. It was a white one. And that white stone declared that Jesus was on my side. He declared me not guilty. 
Of what? Of whatever it is that I've done. He's declared me not guilty. He put in a stone. He put in a white stone. And he voted in favor of me. God's on your side. And if he's on your side, who can possibly be against you? And again he stood up and he wrote, uh, stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, They didn't have a clear conscience. They didn't have a free conscience. Why? Because they were guilty. Because even though they were religious about making their sacrifices at the appointed times, whenever that was, that sacrifice could never cleanse them it could never take away the shame. It could never give them a clear conscience. And so why was it that they rose up and they walked away? Because their conscience condemned them. Because they weren't washed in the blood of the Lamb. They were washed in the blood or not washed. They were covered over with the blood of goats and lambs, which we read in Hebrews, could never take away their guilt, could never take away their shame. But our guilt, our shame, has been removed through the blood of Jesus. Being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. I think it's significant that he mentions the oldest first. Because of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers, those that were there, the oldest would have been the one that had practiced the law the longest. Studied the law the longest. And they were the first ones to walk away and realize, I'm guilty. And it was their conscience that condemned them. Went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't give her a license to go out and sin. But because of the confidence that she is able to have in him and in his love, uh, I'm sure she missed the mark. I'm sure she sinned. But it was no longer her lifestyle. It was no longer her identity. Her identity was with a 
Jesus who forgave her her sin. Now, this is before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. How much more that truth is for you and I? Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was raised from the dead for your justification and for mine. Jesus is seated at the right hand of Father God on high, making intercession for you and I, declaring on our behalf our innocence and how he's on our side. This is what I want you to leave with today. I want you to leave today knowing that Jesus is on your side. And because he, you know that he voted not guilty on your behalf, shame and guilt is to no longer dominate and control your life. Because Jesus voted on your side with the whetstone. You can go through life knowing that you're never alone. That even though it seems as if everybody is against you, there's one who's for you. And when there's you and Jesus, it doesn't matter how many are against you. You and Jesus make up the majority. It doesn't matter how anybody else votes. Jesus voted for you. And with that confidence, with that assurance, with that knowledge, we're shame-free. We have the victory. And it says in 2 John, or 1 John rather, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith, our faith in the completed works of Jesus, our faith that Jesus is not against us, he's for us, our faith that through Jesus our sins are forgiven, it's about Jesus. So walk in that victory. Know that you are a overcomer. Because of Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. His vote counts for more than anything that you've ever done. That's our Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you that he put in a stone, a white one. And through that stone, he declares our innocent. Through that stone, he votes for us and not against us. With that stone, that white one, he declares that we're overcomers. And because we have confidence in you, Jesus, we're able to deal with every circumstance that comes our way. And we come through always, always, 
victoriously. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. For we have the confidence, we have the assurance, we have your word that you're with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for blessing us above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. And we thank you for it in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. So I trust that you had ears to hear this morning. Amen. That we're innocent. He's on our side. We walk in victory. And so as you go, go in his peace, go in his strength, go in his love. Go in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, and have a blessed week.